Jeffrey Lickman for Beyond the Legal Limit. We're back after a two-week hiatus. I appreciate you coming back and not assuming that I'm never going to do another podcast again, but you're here and, and today is the August 1st podcast. Now, what I want to talk about is something that's not really a comfortable topic amongst defense lawyers. And the truth is, the ugly truth is that not all the time do you like your clients. I don't judge them based on what they're charged with because it's never a good thing. I mean, you're never charged with a, a positive thing when you're charged criminally. It's always something bad. Either you did it or you're charged with something bad. And the clients um, are not always the nicest people, not always the most likable people. They oftentimes can be difficult to deal with just because they're under such enormous stress. So it's somewhat understandable. But Regardless of how you feel about them, you have to do the best you can because you're fighting for yourself. It's not just for the client. You want to do well. If you do well for the client, you're doing well for yourself. And if you have pride in your work, that's just how you are. That's how most of us are who care about the work. So you do anything you can, even if you don't like them, because you want to you win the case. But sometimes you have a client who you really, really like, who you really click with. If not for the horrible circumstances under which you met, you might actually be his friend. And in those cases, you feel even more pressure than the regular case sometimes because, you know, you have to get a good result because you want to help out your, your friend in a way. That's how you feel. You don't want to let your friend down. And sometimes you have to, to watch as bad things happen to people you really care about, you genuinely like in a, as a criminal defense lawyer. And that, that oftentimes really does suck. One case I had that I'm thinking back on. I don't think I've talked about since I've been doing these podcasts, uh, was a client named Tony Bland. He was an assistant basketball coach for the USC, uh, Southern California college basketball team. And this was a guy that I just loved from the start. He was charged about five years ago in September of 2017 by the Manhattan federal prosecutors. And he was charged with uh, three other assistant basketball coaches, as well as uh, sneaker company executives, street agents financial advisors, and, you know, all charged with, with bribery for taking money or giving money in connection with getting college basketball players to sign um, with either schools or with financial advisors while they were in college. And eventually they'd make big money in the NBA and they could then make big money for advisors and agents. And there was no claim that the, the coaches were stealing from the players or that they were doing anything that was negative for the players. It's just that they were simply getting a, a kickback, a small kickback to steer players to these advisors and agents and perhaps even some schools. And as I said, some of the money might go to players to get them to sign with these agents or with uh, the schools. And the amount of money was tiny in this case. Tony was alleged to have received $13,000 total in bribes. And we were really able to prove that the actual number was about $4,100. So for $4,100, he was in the position to lose his career that he worked so hard for for so many years. And this is in a sport in which there's so much open cheating. Players had been paid to come to schools, you know, since the first college basketball game. This isn't exactly a controversial statement that I'm making. These are usually the players, the students who are also players, are oftentimes inner city, poor black kids who get recruited to these wonderful universities and they're promptly exploited. Schools make a ton of money off of them and the kids get ostensibly a free education, which most of them don't even really want. 
they need money for their you know very meager lives and the lives of their families. They don't need the education. They just want to get to the NBA as quickly as possible so they can support their families. And the landscape of college basketball and the NBA required players to attend college for at least one year. This is back when Tony's case uh, went down. And so they had to go to college. And in essence, that's when the colleges, the coaches, uh, got their hooks into them, so to speak. But even more galling um, about uh, than the minor amount of money involved is that the NCAA rules recently changed last year. Student athletes can now get paid by advertisers or even boosters to attend the college. Some are making seven figures a year to attend college. And oftentimes you'll have college players that are marginal NBA talents that are probably not going to be able to play in the NBA. They'll have to go overseas and play in Turkey or China. And they'll stay in college longer because they can make such huge money exploiting their name, image, and likeness. And you've got uh, some people that are making, you know, a million dollars a year to stay in college. And if they had gone out to try to make the pros, you know, they may be making $200,000. So that's kind of the way the rules have changed since Tony was indicted. And uh, again, uh, some of the people that were charged in the case were helping funnel big time money to these players to get them to go to a particular school, but not Tony. He wasn't charged with that. But again, um, that was illegal in 2017, uh, 2021. Well, it's legal anyway. So Tony was referred to me by Jerry Shargell. I spoke about him last week. He passed away a couple of weeks ago, my old boss. And uh, he called me up and said, I've got a case for you. I think this is right up your alley. You love sports and uh, you'll understand this stuff. Well, and immediately I took to Tony. What nauseated me from the start from the case was just the arrogance of the federal prosecutors, just massive arrogance, the Southern District. They had this, they have these moronic press conferences in their uh, little uh, entryway in the U.S. Attorney's Office, and they always talk so tough, and they talk, they try to make like funny language. To, I don't know why they do this, but they just can't speak, but everything's got to be like a little, a little uh, quirky little uh, play on words. and, and I don't know, whoever writes these things, it's idiotic, but this is what they do. In this case, uh, during their televised news conference, June Kim was the acting U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York, and he warned other coaches to come clean. Keep in mind, June Kim is about five foot three inches and weighs about 110 pounds. He warned other coaches to come clean because, quote, it's better for you to be calling us than for us to be calling you. And the FBI's William Sweeney delivered a, a thinly veiled threat toward every coach, college basketball coach in America. We have your playbook. Our investigation is ongoing and we are conducting additional interviews as I speak. <laughs> There's going to be some more charges. William Sweeney. Anyway, you've got these two assholes making it clear that it's not, it's, it's not going to be the colleges. It's not going to be the NCAA who are going to clean up college basketball because June Kim has had enough. He's probably never seen a college basketball game in his life. It's going to be the feds that are going to clean up college basketball. I mean, that makes so much sense because they're usually so involved in college basketball. So, you know, we need all the, the arrogance of, of the feds to clean it up because I guess they just understand college basketball so much better than the NCAA and the players and the coaches. And in this case, they used multiple undercover agents to get it done. They treated it like they were trying to ferret out a Russian spy at the White House. 
all this money, all this effort made to get some college coaches who took a few thousand dollars in bribes. And I was a bit nauseated by the charging decisions as well. Four black assistant coaches were amongst the men charged. Four. Only four assistant coaches, all black. No head coaches. No white coaches. Who do you think the assistants were paying the players to come to the schools for? For the head coaches. And, and I'm not someone, just so I can back up, I think it's pretty clear if you've been listening, I'm not one of these people that sees racism behind every shadow, not at all. I'm against affirmative action, and I'm for a meritocracy. If you're, if you're good at something, you should get the job, you should get the position in school. They shouldn't put somebody ahead of you just based on the color of their skin. As I said, I don't see racism in everything. But in this case, where were all the white head coaches? Coaches and top administrators in colleges are, are oftentimes white, and they're making money off of black athletes. It's exploitation for sure. But all the people in this case that were charged were black, except for one. I'm talking about not just the coaches. So now you're saying, well, you know, maybe there's no evidence against the white head coaches or the agents. Well, you know, maybe it was just the black guys that were bad. Well, you know, except there was evidence that white head coaches were involved and didn't get charged. Where did I find it? In the indictment. And I'll give you some examples. Andy Miller was a very prominent, was a very prominent basketball agent with just a horrible reputation. And he worked with one of the people charged in the case, a runner, like a street runner uh, named Christian Dawkins. And what a runner does is he hustles the players and tries to get them to come to the agent and sign with the agent when they're ready to go pro. That was what his job was, Christian Dawkins. That's all he did. And, and that included presumably paying players as well to go to these agents. Miller had his office searched on the day all these men were arrested. Okay, this is a guy that has maybe the worst reputation of any basketball agent. His office gets exhaustively searched for hours. Somehow Andy Miller was never charged criminally, just the guy who did his dirty work. Sean Miller, unrelated, was the head coach of Arizona, and, and this is like a perennial top five basketball team. His assistant coach was Book Richardson who was charged in the case naturally. But FBI wiretaps in the case, and this was reported, I'm not just saying this based on what I knew about the case, but FBI wiretaps in the case revealed intercepted telephone conversations between Sean Miller, the head coach of Arizona, and Christian Dawkins, the runner, in which Miller discussed paying $100,000 to ensure that star freshman DeAndre Ayton, who now plays for the Phoenix Suns, that he signed with Arizona for college. Amazing. Sean Miller and Dawkins had multiple conversations about Aiden. When Dawkins asked Sean Miller if he should work with assistant coach Book Richardson to finalize the agreement to pay off Aiden, Miller told Dawkins he should deal directly with him when it came to money. And again, this was reported publicly. This isn't something I'm just telling you. Sean Miller was not indicted. Sean Miller wasn't fired immediately for this. Just his assistant coach who had his life ruined and went to jail for 90 days. Book Richardson. But there's more. How about LSU head coach Will Wade? FBI wiretaps of a Christian Dawkins and Will Wade conversations they had, in which Wade admitting making a, quote, strong-ass offer in the recruitment of an LSU guard named Javante Smart in 2017. That offer was money. 
the strong-ass offer. Wade was not charged criminally. Wade wasn't immediately fired for this. Hell no. There's more. Miami basketball coach Jim Laranega, great coach. He was not listed in the indictment by his name, but he was listed as, quote, Coach 3 in the indictment. They're trying to hide it so that you can't figure out who the white head coach is. And in the indictment, it's mentioned that Coach 3 was trying to funnel approximately $150,000 to an unnamed player listed as Player 12. We don't want to besmirch the good reputations of these fine college uh, players. Excuse me, they were high school players and their coaches. That ends up being Naz Little, who's in the NBA right now. He stinks, but he's still in the NBA. And uh, Jim Laranega was trying to send them some money. Laranega wasn't indicted. Laranega wasn't fired and still coaches at Miami. And he's a great coach. Laranega, like Will Wade and Sean Miller and Andy Miller, what do they have in common? They're white. And what about Rick Pitino? You know Rick Pitino, Hall of Fame basketball coach, former coach of the Knicks. He was, quote, coach two in the indictment, and excuse me, in the criminal complaint in the case. God forbid he get publicly named. We don't want to ruin his reputation. Again, another guy with a horrible reputation for cheating. Horrible. We don't want to ruin that stellar reputation. Coach two is referenced nine times in the criminal complaint, including once when Christian Dawkins, the runner who worked for the sports agent Andy Miller, is quoted as saying he had, quote, spoken with Coach 2 about getting additional money for Player 10's family. Player 10 was Louisville freshman Brian Bowen. The complaint charged that the sneaker company Adidas was trying to funnel $100,000 from Adidas to Bowen's family in exchange for, the, for Bowen to commit to Louisville. Why do they want, why does Adidas want Brian Bowen, a top recruit, to go to Louisville? Well, because Adidas had a $160 million apparel deal with Louisville. So they want the best players wearing their sneakers. Rick Pitino wasn't indicted. No. Just four black assistant coaches who couldn't fall back on the tens of millions of dollars in earnings the way the other head coaches could have who were not charged. Now, despite bragging in their in that uh, opening news conference that we have your playbook, Oh, such a funny joke. My God, these guys are so so goddamn funny, these federal prosecutors and federal agents. These are guys that wear brown pants. They're funny. You just didn't know it. They, anyway, despite having the playbook, they made no effort to go after any of the big names. As typical of them, they grabbed the low-hanging fruit and took the easy way out for publicity. That's all they want. And, and as typical of them, they give their bullshit press conference and they try to appear tough. But instead, they were weak and they were weaselly in this case. The acting U.S. attorney, June Kim, who was at the press conference talking tough, all five foot three and 115 pounds of him, he warned coaches to come clean because it's better for you to be calling us than for us to be calling you. Well, he was one of the gaudy prosecutors that I had in 2005 in the trial. He was pathetic. He was pathetic. He was a weakling. He was embarrassing. He was a horrible prosecutor, a horrible lawyer. He was afraid of his own shadow. And frankly, I abused him because I'm a bully. For 23 days, I abused this turd because he was weak. I abused him. And sometimes I'd even call him by his the wrong name just to make the jury laugh. Instead of calling him Mr. Kim, I'd call him Mr. June. 
naturally, of course, he got promoted uh, to U.S. attorney, the head of the office, and I'm sure his ethnicity had nothing to do with it at all, that he got the job due to his stellar courtroom skills, which included losing the biggest trial of, I don't know, the decade, the Gotti trial, when he was one of the prosecutors. Not only did the feds not arrest any head coach or anyone else after that press conference about having the, the playbook, they did all they could to shield the dirty ones, all the dirty coaches who were in the indictment anonymously. The feds fought in court in 2019 to keep LSU's Will Wade and Arizona's Sean Miller and other coaches off the witness stand when Christian Dawkins, he was the runner for the agent Andy Miller, when he went to trial. Some of these guys went to trial and they lost. The feds also fought to keep one of the undercover FBI agents in the case who was making tapes against Tony and the others. Well, what did he do? He stole $13,500 of government money and gambled it away at a Las Vegas casino in July of 2017, exactly when he was taping Tony and some of the other coaches. So while he was working, he was stealing money from the feds. He stole more than than Tony was even alleged to have taken in bribes. And the government still charged Tony and ruined his life. $4,100. Naturally, the government did all that it could to cover this up and ensure that the crooked agent wouldn't have to testify because we can't be embarrassed when we're the feds. They can just destroy everyone else's lives. Now, Tony was a very in-demand college coach. He was a top recruiter for a top team. He would have been a head coach, you know, maybe months after he got arrested. Certainly, there were calls for him to be a head coach. There was interest. He would have had his own program. So to see this happen to him when all the hard work that he did for his life was about to pay off, it was brutal. And it was the same with Book Richardson, uh, who was the top recruiter for Arizona. He was the one who worked for Sean Miller. Arizona's a perennial top 10 team. These were two of the top assistant coaches in America, and they lost it all over a few thousand dollars. I mean, this couldn't have been handled without a federal indictment, especially since the feds lied about wanting to clean up the sport. They wanted jail time for Tony and Book, but the undercover uh, crooked agent who stole that money, he didn't go to jail. They got a few months in jail for Book. He got 90 days and a year uh, or so for the others, nine months for this one, a year for that one. Tony was lucky he didn't get any jail time. But a crooked FBI agent who sworn to uphold the law, what did he get? He got everything shielded, everything hidden, and I don't think he went to jail either. So Tony pled, as I said, to taking $4,100 in bribes, which was two-thirds less than what he was charged with because the government made a mistake. And he was facing a year in jail, and naturally the feds asked for up to a year in jail. They wanted some jail time. And this was really an emotional sentencing for me. I was worried that he was going to get jail. And I talked about how Tony was raised by his grandparents in the roughest area of Los Angeles, the, the Watts neighborhood. Tony's mother was just 14 years old when she gave birth to him, and her parents disowned him on account of her being pregnant. He had nowhere else to turn, and she was hopelessly addicted to crack, the mother. She left Tony with his grandparents. Whenever the mother was around, she used drugs around him. And when he was eight years old, and I told this to the court, when he was eight years old, she brought him to a crack house to purchase drugs. There was very little stability in this tiny one-bedroom apartment that multiple people uh, lived in at times, including aunts and cousins. They all survived on uh, his grandfather's small military pension, but it wasn't enough to, to provide food for everyone that was in and out of that apartment. 
And as a kid, Tony would often wait in long lines for, uh, for food at the food bank or use food stamps. And sometimes he rummaged in trash for food. And to make things worse, Tony's grandmother was an alcoholic schizophrenic. And she's the one that raised him. Tony's father was a gang member, didn't live with him, and he was in prison for decades in most of Tony's childhood. In short, Tony was abandoned as a young boy, had a mother on drugs, a father in and out of jail. He had a half-brother who was, was killed. Tony's earliest memory of his father, and I told this to the judge, was of the police chasing him through their home. After his grandmother died, Tony was shuffled off to his aunt. Everyone around him used drugs or was in a gang, but somehow this guy rose above it. He had dreams and he made them a, a reality, which is a lot different than you or me achieving our dreams. We started out a lot better. This guy was, you know, uh, sh should be dead by now. Despite all that, he became the first one in his family to attend and to graduate college. He played college basketball for Syracuse and, and San Diego State and became one of the top assistant coaches in the country. And after all that, some Weasley prosecutor named June Kim, or Kim June, whatever the fuck his name was, who wanted a headline for his career, is mocking him during a press conference, ruined his life over a few thousand dollars. And despite the horrible upbringing that, that Tony had with no parental oversight or stability, he became a great father to his own four children. He coached their teams. He completely supported them, made time for them. His oldest son, this tells you a lot about, about a father, is how do the kids do? His oldest son attends Princeton and plays football there. And as his wife wrote in her letter to the court for Tony's sentencing, she's talking about the son. She wrote, quote, I tell people all the time I get the credit for his academics and athleticism, but his heart and kindness come from his dad. That's the kind of guy Tony Bland was and is, just always positive, even when he got so badly screwed by the feds. This guy always managed to keep a smile on his face. And at the sentencing, I blasted uh, USC, which the government had the balls to claim was the victim in this case. That's the school that employed Tony. USC. Anybody who knows anything about college sports knows how dirty they are historically. One of the dirtiest programs ever. Ever. They've got to be up there on the list for the most major infractions in the history. College, basketball, football, you name it. Now they're the victim. And I'm going to read to you how the press reported my comments at Tony's sentencing. So you don't think I'm making it look better now. Lickman spent nearly five minutes on Wednesday explaining to Judge Ramos how USC as an institution has a sordid history of NCAA rules violations and that Bland wasn't some singular stain on the legacy of the school. Quote, it's not exactly a paragon of virtue in the NCAA's landscape, Lichtman said of USC, as he made reference to other transgressions the school has gone through, including the current college admissions bribery scandal that continues to make national headlines. That's the Varsity Blues cases. Naturally, USC was selling spots uh, in their school for money. Lichtman also pointed out that Bland was replaced on USC's staff by Eric Mobley, the father of two five-star prospects in 2019 and 2020. It's a legal move, but a transparent one, and something that's happened for decades in college basketball. That's what the press said. Quote, they were roundly criticized, Lichtman said, of USC's hiring of Mobley. It was slimy. This is what they do a lot of times. I mean, Larry Brown, another slimy head coach, when he was at Kansas in the 80s, hired Danny Manning's father. I think he was a truck driver to be an assistant coach. Danny Manning was the best player in the country. Guess where Danny Manning then ended up playing? 
Well, he went to go play with his dad at Kansas, and they won a national championship together. That's the kind of slimy stuff that happens. But there was more that I said about USC. At the time of Tony's sentencing, USC was in the midst of a sex abuse scandal. They buried eight complaints against a healthcare gynecologist between the years of 2000 and 2014. And when they were caught, they never reported them to the state medical board. This is USC. And this was after the university hired former FBI director Louis Free, and they paid him millions of dollars to investigate the basketball program. What did they do after they hired Free? They ended up hiring the father of these top two recruits in the country to uh, fill the assistant coach position vacated by the firing of Tony Bland, making it certainly obvious that the reason they did it was just to get the, the coach's sons to commit to USC. As I said in court, quote, one of the sons is already uh, attended and the other is on his way. And USC is concerned about Tony Bland harming their good reputation. Spoiler alert, USC's athletic program has a horrible reputation. The judge, Judge Ramos, very fair judge, um, gave Tony probation, which was a big relief. Because as I said, most of the other people in the case, I think every other one but one all went to jail. And five years later, he's back in coaching at a high school in Los Angeles, and he's doing great. But, you know, he's not a top assistant in one of the top programs, college programs in the country. And he hopes to get back, obviously, into either college or the pros. And he deserves a second chance after what he's been through. I mean, how do you not give this guy a second chance after he overcame so much? But most importantly, because the world, America, should be a meritocracy, he's great at what he does. Sean Miller, the head coach of Arizona, eventually got fired for what he did. But the real reason they fired him is because he wasn't, his teams weren't playing well. But he landed on his feet, don't you know? And he got a new head coaching job, despite the fact that he was captured on tape paying players. Book Richardson, his former assistant, who took the fall, well, he's coaching eighth graders in the Bronx right now. Eighth graders. He couldn't be a more decent guy. Someone who I consider a real friend today and i didn't even represent him at the in the case somebody else did how do we not give these guys another chance at the college level especially now that we're paying these kids anyway to go to these schools to show you the kind of guy tony is he called me a couple of months ago out of the blue i hadn't spoken to him in a while just to thank me for saving him he didn't have to go to jail that he got out of this uh, with the best result in the case that's the kind of guy Tony Bland is. He's not bitter anymore. He's completely positive, and he's looking forward to the next day to rebuild his life, rebuild his reputation, and take his rightful spot where he belongs in the college or pro coaching landscape. And Book Richardson contacts me all the time to see how I'm doing. He contacts me to see how I'm doing. That's the kind of guy Book Richardson is. It's crazy. Meanwhile, June Kim is in some big law firm, still an utterly talentless hack, who nearly cried when I abused him during the Gotti trial. Life is not fair sometimes. That's the bottom line. Now, the next thing I want to talk about, something in the news. Joe Biden's got COVID for the second time. I mean, the guy's 79 years old. He's barely coherent as it is. And he's gotten COVID for the second time. I'm sure the country's in great hands. If you've ever had COVID, even if you've been vaccinated, it's, it's a bitch. I mean, I had it and I was sick probably for three weeks. My head was foggy for the entire time. It really sucked. I hated it. I wasn't badly sick, but I was confused. I wasn't able to think very clearly. And I was so lethargic, I could barely stand up. 
But anyway, this week we learned that the country was in a recession. What's a recession? It's when the economy has two or more consecutive quarters of negative growth. This is the commonly accepted definition of a recession. In this case, the U.S. economy shrank from April through June, that's one quarter, at a rate of 0.9% of an annual pace, and that followed a drop of 1.6% of the gross domestic product from January through March. So we've had negative growth two, two quarters in a row, and it's not really a big surprise for anybody living in America how bad we're doing financially, how bad we're doing economically. Inflation is at a 41-year high, and supply chain issues are not even close to being fixed, even though Biden promised before the election, I will not uh, have any problem dealing with this uh, virus. I will not have any problem dealing with the supply chains. We're not going to shut anything down. Well, guess what? We're pretty much worse off than we were under Trump when it comes to this. Now, also, he promised that he was going to fix the economy. That's what he said. 18 months later, you know, we're still in some pretty deep shit. U.S. consumers are paying for groceries that are 10.4% more expensive than last year. That's a lot. Gas is up nearly 60% from 2021. And uh, home expenses shelter, they've riven, risen 5.6% since June of 2021. Naturally, Joe Biden lied and said that we're not in a recession. Like that actually helps uh, the country to just lie about what we're going through. Because if you lie about it, maybe it won't be true, I suppose. And naturally, all of his minions all continued to lie, hoping to fool the American people into thinking that their lives are actually better off now than they were financially a year or two ago. But people are not fooled. And the favorability ratings uh, for Biden are the lowest in history since polls have been kept at this stage of his presidency, which is. I guess about a year and a half. And the issue, the economy, is by far the most important issue to voters in America. Registered voters, when asked what their number one concern is, they listed the economy first, 20%. Inflation, which is really obviously part of the economy, was second at 15%. So you've got 35% for the economy. What's next? Democracy and political divisions was next at 11%. What's after that? Gun policies, 10%. Abortion came in at just 5%, which is actually higher than it normally does, but it's only because Roe v. Wade got overturned recently by the Supreme Court. At the end of the day, what people really care about, they just want to be able to feed their families. They just want to be able to pay their bills and take care of their children. That's it. They don't care about the climate. They don't care about the abortion. They certainly don't care about trans rights. I can tell you that. Nobody gives a shit. Nobody cares. Which is why Joe Biden is lying about the recession that he claims is not a recession because he recognizes that voters are pissed about the economy. Now, his approval rating of 39%, as I said, is now the worst of any elected president at this point in his presidency since the end of World War II. That's a lot of presidents. Biden is in worse shape than any other elected president heading into his first midterm election, including his four most recent predecessors, who, like Biden, uh, operated in a, uh, a very polarized political climate. So it's not like people just hate him because he's a Democrat and the Republicans hate him. And if the president's Republican, the Democrats hate him. The last four presidents has been very polarized. Nobody is even close to as low as Biden. So it's, it's, as I said, it's not just because of his politics. 
uh, that the country is divided. Democrats don't like them much at all, and the great majority of them want someone else to run for the White House in 2024. Not him. 75% of Democrats don't want him to run in 2024. Think about that. That's how bad, how unpopular he is in his own party. And he's 79 years old. He's going to be 81 when he runs for office again the next one, assuming he doesn't die, which he could be dead as I'm talking because he's had COVID twice in, in 10 days. Democrats even know that this guy's no good, that he's just destroyed the country. He's destroyed it. Tell me one thing that's better off now. And I don't want to hear the, the BS that, you know, now we've got some class in the White House. As I've said before, he's got two kids that are both crack addicts and sex addicts that are both in rehab, have been in rehab for this stuff. What does that tell you about the parents? doesn't tell you much, right? Just 13% of Americans believe that the country is headed in the right direction, according to a recent New York Times poll. Only 27% of Democrats believe the country. Democrats. Only 27% of Democrats believe the country is headed in the right direction. 77% of Americans feel the country is headed in the wrong direction. And it's even worse among young people who are obviously mostly liberal and mostly vote Democratic. Just 10% of, of kids between the ages of 18 and 29, they think, they, they think the country's on the right track. While 77% of young respondents in that age group, they said no, that the country's in the wrong direction. And as I said, Biden is already right now the oldest person right now to hold the office of the presidency. And he claims he's going to run again in two years. What, is he going to get younger? It's going to reverse uh, his age, his, his incompetence, his incoherence, his confusion, the, the shit that he dumps in his pants. All that stuff is going to go backwards as he gets older? Unlikely. This is why Biden had a lie about the recession being a recession, because he's doing all that he can to trick people into thinking things aren't really bad. Things are, though, really bad. So instead of coming clean with America, he lies because he's a liar. On the White House website, they redefine what a recession is, getting rid of the accepted definition of two consecutive negative growth quarters and claiming instead that a recession is defined by a holistic view of the data. That means you just, you feel. It's how you feel about the data, meaning basically they can subjectively lie about whether or not we're in a recession instead of having objective factors like two negative quarters in a row of growth, uh, which can't be manipulated by partisan politicians. And that helps you determine the question if you just can look at it objectively. Now, Treasury Secretary, Secretary Janet Yellen, naturally, she lied along with her boss, insisting that, quote, this is not an economy that's in recession. Just a lie. White House Press Secretary, this Karine Jean-Pierre, who's so out of her, the league, so out of her league, she's so dumb that she reads off prepared propaganda. She can't answer questions spontaneously like that ginger devil, Jen Psaki could, who was actually good at the job. I mean, I, I hate her because she was dishonest and she was evil, and she probably drank the blood of small children being a ginger and all. But Karine Jean-Pierre makes an ass out of herself every day for one, excuse me, two good reasons. She's black and she's queer. They needed to check those boxes because that's what Democrats are. It's all about identity. It's not about merit. It's not about who's best for the job. It's whether or not you got a dick growing out of your forehead. We got to check that box off. Dick growing out of forehead. Checkity check. 
Anyway, she lied as well, claiming that we're not in a, a recession, but we're in a transition. Yes, we're in a transition to everybody starving to death. No question in my mind that Corinne Jean-Pierre understands none of these issues and is just towing the party line. Naturally, of course, the evidence can easily be found that they're lying. Uh, a recession, this is what Bill Clinton uh, said, a recession is two quarters in a row of negative growth. He said that in December of 2000. He was a Democrat. Biden's National Economic Council Director, Brian Deese, last week said that two negative quarters of gross domestic product growth is not the technical definition of recession. He lied last week. It's not the definition that economists have traditionally relied on when, refer when referring to what a recession is. But in 2008, when he didn't need to lie for Biden, he said, quote, economists have a technical definition of recession, which is two consecutive quarters of negative growth. So he told the truth when he didn't know that he had to lie for Biden 14 years later. This is just another liar from this administration. In May of this year, just two months ago, two, three months ago, Biden's chair of the White House Council of Economic Advisors said that two quarters of declining economic growth in a row is a recession. Just a few months ago, Biden's economic advisor, Jared Bernstein, said in September of 2019, two quarters of declining economic growth in a row is a recession. So you've got also in May of 2019, Biden's economic advisor, Heather Bushy, said, a recession is two quarters of negative growth in, growth in gross domestic product, which is what we have now. But he'll never tell you the truth because he needs to lie because all they care about is power. They just want the power. They don't want to fix the country. If they wanted to fix the country, would they be making every possible mistake you could make? Of course not. No, come on. So who is actually, here, here's the question. This is what I, I delved into. Who is actually believing what this tired, dumb, confused, pants-shitting old man has to say? It's not many people if you look at the polls. I looked at some poll numbers, and I broke them down by demographic. You actually could, they showed demographics as to who is voting for Biden, who supports Biden, and who doesn't. It's called favorability ratings. Men hate Biden. Whites hate Biden. Hispanics hate Biden. Blacks like him, but they seem to like every Democratic candidate, no matter how bad they are. And Biden is killing the black community financially because of the inflation. People that don't have a lot of money, I don't even notice the fact that there's inflation. Why? Because I'm rich. But if you're a poor black dude or a, a middle-class white guy, you're feeling the pinch because you're losing 10% of your income to inflation. But I'm going to remove the blacks from this analysis because, as I said, blacks have never not loved the Democratic candidate. No matter whoever the candidate is, they love them. So I have to take them out of it. Women love Biden still. People who live in the cities hate Biden. Suburban people, they still favor Biden. So after all the smoke clears, what's actually left? Who still loves Biden? Women who live in the suburbs. That's it. That's all who love Biden. They're the only ones who are buying the garbage that he's selling. And I thought about it. Why? Why, why, why do suburban women support him when they surely know that when they shop for groceries, they're getting hammered compared to last year? They know that when they get gas for their big SUVs, those soccer moms, they know that they're getting hammered. Why don't they care? Why are they supporting him when they know it's costing their families huge money? And, and forget the stock market, which is 
gotten destroyed since the beginning of the year. I'm just talking inflation in an economy that's going backwards. Well, let's examine the bizarre phenomenon of the suburban woman voter. They know nothing about foreign policy because foreign policy doesn't impact their shopping or their makeup routines. They spend their days pretending to care about social justice because they see it online and in their various chat groups. They have to virtue signal each of them telling each other how liberal they are, how they pretend to care about the downtrodden. They, down, they, they care about minorities. They don't care about the horrible financial state that Biden has put a, the American family in, where 58% of Americans live paycheck to paycheck right now. That's over 150 million adults in America. Why doesn't the suburban woman voter care about these financial issues? Because their poor, pathetic husbands are working their asses off to support them. And as long as the ATM card works, they don't care that the husband has to work more to make the, the same money as he made the year before because of inflation. They don't care. They just don't care. The poor, the poor husbands are busting their asses. And what are these women doing? Well, what do they actually add? They're breathing. Have to breathe. I can breathe today. They're dancing in their kitchens. They're creating potions and elixirs for their idiot friends. It's a real circle jerk. Nothing that pays a single bill worth paying. Nothing do they make that kind of money. So they have the luxury of not worrying about the recession because their husband will pay for everything. That's how the only demographic still supports Biden, when every other one recognizes how badly screwed we are, how all the hard work we've done in our jobs, in our careers, in our professions, in our businesses is being eroded due to the highest rate of inflation since Jerry Ford was in the White House. And while these suburban women uh, voters pretend to care about social justice, it's just a front. You can't possibly believe that they care about minorities. It's just to keep up socially with their idiot Yenta friends. They hate Jews, I promise you. They hate blacks just as, as much as the most ardent racist. You think they want to live next door to a Jew or a black? Of course not. When the veil is lifted, when the truth sneaks out, and occasionally it does, these social justice warriors, these suburban women voters, they're Jew-hating racists who are completely devoid of any substance. And listen to me. You know it's true. It's true. Breathing and dancing around your kitchen and slurping coffee, that doesn't get this country anywhere. You're just a drain. You create nothing. You're a pox on our society, a drain. The kids out there, you know what I'm talking about. You see your father busting his ass, working six to seven days a week while your mom is taking pictures for her Instagram account and breathing, slurping their coffee, adding nothing. Is that what you want to grow up to be? A noose around a man's neck? I hope not. Study hard, work hard, don't give up and settle for a life of worthless, of vapid idiocy. Create something so that when you leave this world, you leave a legacy. Don't just be some adult, suburban, white, moron woman. Don't do it. On that happy note, Jeffrey Lickman for Beyond the Legal Limit. You can find me on Spotify and Apple uh, Podcasts. You can write to me at uh, beyondthelegallimit.com and 
Tell me how much you love me, because I get a lot of love each week, except from the suburban white women voters. See you next week.